Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is great to have Brian Weisstein at the mic with us now, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Head of Global Fixed Income. Brian, we have come a long day, a long year, a long way, yields down, and now we've had a little bit of a bounce off around 140 in the last couple of months, back up to 181. What are you telling clients now? Not to expect rates to go up that much, but they're still too low. It's amazing. I think you're right that tenure notes went from 325 to 140. Unloved the whole time. I think I was with you when uh, when they were loved at I think 140. You were, yeah. And uh, and we discussed that was too low. Uh, listen, 225 seems like a a good ceiling for now. Uh, central banks still want to ease, but rates do seem low. Are you confident we've come out of this growth scare? No, uh, I, we wish we were, and there's a, a hundred reasons to be optimistic, but you really haven't seen a, a lot of data that shows it is. Um, listen, we're, the markets are expecting PMIs to go up. The markets are expecting employment to be okay. The danger is that, that it doesn't come through at this point. Are bonds linked to equities now? Yes, uh, it looks like it to us. I, I mean, if you told me, what, if you asked me what's the most dangerous thing for equities, I would think it could be meaningfully higher rates. I think it would, it would ruin the narrative that you have to find yield, that you have to move out the curve, that you have to buy yeah, risk we've assets. Been, we've been looking for meaningfully higher rates for what, 15 years? At least. I, I mean, do, do you, can you, guys, you guys have made some really important calls, Ellen Zentner, Mike Wilson, and the rest. Can you make a call that we range out and break through to higher yields? I don't hear that. No, it's okay. it's hard to make Thank that call. You don't see inflation. You don't see growth breaking out. It would take some other policy movement, I think, to break out. I'm watching European bond markets because we're focused on the U.S. market. But frankly, uh, European bonds have actually had a much bigger sell-off. And I, I want to get a sense of this being capitulation, that negative yields, A, haven't worked, and that, B, the ECB has no more ammunition. Are you more concerned about the European debt market right now than the U.S.? No, not not really. I think to say negative yields haven't worked is is it, it, you have to break it down a little bit more granularly. Obviously, if you're borrowing at higher rates, like some of the periphery was, uh, lower rates and negative rates have been very important. Do you think Italy would issue a 60 basis point bond today? It, should, it, should they? Well, it's, I mean, it's, should it's, they be able to? It's a, it's a great question, but that they are is great for them. Uh, it's great for, for risk assets. So listen, I think European yields are going to stay low. I don't think they're going to give up on the negative yield experiment. Um, and, and and, and yes, there's been a sell-off, but they're still pretty negative. So I don't think a, a 40 or 50 basis point move in European yields from negative 70 to negative 30 or to zero is what's going to break the well, camel's back. Well, with the policy back. rate at negative 50 basis points, it's hard to construct an argument the front end of the yield curve in Europe is going to sell off massively with the policy rate where it is, Brian. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And as I said, I, I wish I could give you a, a magical high interest rate uh, call, yeah. but it's not. It's, it doesn't seem like it's in the cards Markets yet. are telling you a story about the future. The fundamentals can tell you a very different story. In Germany right now, arguably, we're in a recession in Germany, yet the DAX in 2019 is up around about 25%, and bond yields have had a massive move. What do you make of the spread between sentiment and fundamentals at the moment? 
The one thing I'll say about equity markets is that th there was a big swoon between uh, October, November of last year and today. So I think the S&P from the October highs is only up about 6%. Uh, it depends how you measure it. So yes, equities have done well. Uh, I, I, think the, I, I think I'll go back to what Tom said, which is that I think that this promise of lower yields uh, is driving people into equity markets. And even though people don't feel great about the world, it's an un yeah. unloved equity yeah. market, uh, they're still slowly trickling in and, and levels keep going Absolutely. higher. Absolutely. Absolutely extraordinary. The market action yesterday, just the sector by sector diffusion and the dynamics of it, John, I, I can honestly say I've never seen. All-time highs on the NASDAQ, on the Dow, and on the S&P 500 as well. The outperformance yesterday coming from energy, industrials, financials, the value sectors that many people have been waiting for this rotation into and waiting for Treasury yields to move with it. Your call now going into year-end, what's the conviction call now for you, Brian? The conviction call for us is that that some of these unloved sectors are going to find some love. So you, you can see them in fixed income too, right? If you look at what's underperformed, emerging markets and, and, and the energy sectors in high yield, a few others. So, so you buy triple Cs in high yield? Well, you can, it's not that simple, right? A bunch of those triple Cs are actually really bad companies. So you can't just go and buy the triple C index, uh, but you can certainly find names that in there that, that are okay. It's not easy. I'll, I'll be honest. Fixed income valuations yeah. uh, are, 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 are not uh, obviously wide. For the benefit of our listeners, I asked that question smiling quite a lot because <laughs> yes. I know how complex that is in that space well, right now, Well, hold on Lisa. a second. I want to just give a little statistic. Uh, yesterday, uh, the one-day move in triple C rated bond yields, they went from 11.2% to 10.9%. Bam, it was just a massive rally in yeah. the triple C space. And it was really on the heels in particular of the energy rally that we saw. Uh, but really interesting to see people going back into that. There are so few things that you can pick, point to in fixed income that have that type of coupon. So it's funny, will the, will the fundamentals uh, and, the, and the technicals separate? In other words, will you buy what's terrible just to get the yield for a little while? It's definitely yep. a danger right here. Yep. <laughs> yep, that's what they're doing. Was, yep. Hey, Brian, we appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for running back into the studio. Brian right. Weinstein there, Thanks Morgan Stanley, investment management head of Global Fixed income. Phoenix Kalen now with us with SockGen as we look at emerging market. Phoenix, can you link a better China directly into a better EM or is it a discrete matter right now? I think the Chinese story has become a, a huge part of the EM overall story. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, our, our views in EM is grossly intricately tied to what happens to China over the course of the next 20, 12 months. Is there a broader dollar call here, Phoenix? Hey there. Is there a broader dollar call um, here? Yes. Yeah, so, so the, in terms of the dollar call, you know, we're expecting for dollar CNY to go towards 7.5 by the end of, uh, of the third quarter next year. So, you know, within 12 months, um, and that's going to likely to lead to further EM weakness um, across the EM complex. So, uh, so far, uh, we've gotten a number of PMI data, uh, industrial production data out of emerging markets, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, and it does appear that there is at least some bottoming out. We're getting a whole host of PMIs this week as well from other developing uh, markets. What are you expecting? How important are those figures? Those figures are quite essential in reflecting the state of the economies, especially in Eastern European markets. And as we've seen in the numbers released yesterday from Poland, you know, there is 
spillover from the weakness coming out of the German manufacturing complex. And that's still, I think, a, a long-term story ahead for this economy. Um, and, and that's likely to weigh on the economic growth picture and, and still hold back the overall region. So I think that's still going to impact currencies in particular. So how tied uh, is the slowdown in industrial production to what we're seeing in China? I mean, just sort of connecting it back uh, to the UN. Yeah, so I think that this is part of a much bigger global trade story, and China's slowdown has certainly impacted other regions, and Germany's linked into that intricately. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the, the global slowdown that's being reflected uh, across the manufacturing indices in particular, and, and less so in the services indices. Do you partition EM, bigger, more sophisticated, big cap companies away from other EM stocks, or is it all one basket? No, there's there's a huge amount of idiosyncrasies and uh, diversity across um, the EM world. So I think there's there's lots of ways to partition it, um, and, and certainly you know some of the countries as well as well as you know, they'll function by blocks, they'll function by regions, and then the, there are the idiosyncratic okay. stories that we hear from time to time. Well, give us an idiosyncratic Sokgen view. What what where is that opportunity right now geographically on a nation's basis? Where where would you suggest the opportunity is for someone that believes these ill winds will clear and that we will have a better market? Ooh, but that goes against the core Sokchen view, which is quite bearish in nature, in fact, because um, our, okay. our, our view in terms of you know, U.S. growth for next year, we're expecting for U.S. to print only 0.7% GDP wow. versus a consensus of 1.7. So, um, yeah, I think we, we are kind of the standouts in terms of the market, yeah. in terms of how bearish we think the, the economy will perform. Um, and in that context, you know, our, our views are along the lines yeah. of still being very bullish bonds bearish currencies. Yeah, very good. We got to get you back on that. Phoenix Kalen will be appearing with us every three months uh, here on a 0.7% GDP call. I mean, John, that's extraordinary. It is. Phoenix Kalen. I mean, that is an outlier. I'm going to call that 120 basis points south. Director of EM Strategy going into 2020. One of the great things you can do is drive across the fabric of the country and outside Des Moines there's a sign 580 miles Denver and that's where Eastern Coast people like me go oh it's a big country out there Joseph Ricketts lived it he's the second most famous person out of Nebraska City Nebraska Greg Horton football player is the most famous Joe Ricketts joins us the book is the harder you work the luckier you get and yes we will talk Ameritrade and yes we will talk Cubs at some point what was Nebraska City like in World War II? And I, I bring that up because we have a president nostalgic for the smallness of America of the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. What was it like? I was born in 41, so I was a baby during the war. I remember, though, the anxiety that people had. I felt it as a baby. But coming yeah. out of the war, which is when I started to become a child and grew up through the late 1940s, early 50s, Nebraska City was the perfect place to grow up. I had the freedom to roam, to ride my bicycle in the morning in the summertime. My wife or my mother would give me a sack lunch and I didn't come back. And you capture that in your book and the fabulous photographs as well. We have a president who you support, President Trump, who has a nostalgia for what was 
how do we take our belief in what was and drag it forward into the modern America? I don't know how to answer that question correctly, except to say that if we don't keep the free enterprise system, our society is going to change dramatically for the worse. Yeah. <laughs> so the, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to encourage young people, if they have an entrepreneurial yeah, bent, to start a business. I'm suggesting, John, we don't have a vote here for Senator Warren. Well, let's, let's I, talk about it. <clears throat> Carry on, please, John. <laughs> Do we? Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I'm stunned at the conversation that's, uh, that's in the uh, arena today with this uh, presidential election coming up. Our greatness comes from free enterprise. Every society that has tried socialism has failed. And there is poverty and despair that comes out of socialism. Senator Warren says she's a capitalist. <coughs> she just wants markets to work more efficiently. Do you believe that? No, not at all. Not when you listen. What is it that tells you that she's not what she says Be she is? Because all the benefits that she says she, as the leader of the government, is going to pro provide to society is going to require that she change society dramatically and not in favor of free enterprise. She says all she needs to do to get Medicare for all is tax the billionaires. The billionaires <laughs> are the only people that are going to be paid more. At last count, I think Forbes had 607 billionaires in the United States of America. It's still quite a rare thing, isn't it, Joe, to be that successful it's a very, to get that much money? Very rare thing. And these are the people that make society work. If you'll look at that list of the top 400 billionaires, they're all people that are in business, that are f providing jobs and providing benefits to society. Yet, did you, you take ever think, did you ever think that becoming a billionaire would be seen as a sign not of success, but of market failure? Never. I never dreamed of it. No, not at all. Uh, Joe, we've got to bring in and introduce you to Lisa Abramowitz. Her great claim to fame is at the University of Chicago, she begged Richard Thaler to go to the Cubs game with him. But it never worked out, did it? When you, said, Laureate? when you said your claim to frame, I got this wave of nervousness come over me. I had I mean, no, no clue where you were going with that. But the, just, number of, the number of Nobel laureates that darken the door of Wrigley Field is just something to talk about. Yeah, and I could never get them to go with, a, with me to a Cubs game. But I, I will ask you, um, you talk about free enterprise, and that brings me to the business of TD uh, Meritrade, which you founded. Uh, increasingly, it's moving toward free trading of assets. And I'm wondering, can you connect that, the idea of uh, sort of the availability and the ease of which people can buy and sell securities without paying anything? Do you think that that is uh, a good thing? I'm not sure. I think it has to play out. I, I am hesitant to say it's a good thing. First of all, it's the culmination of what happened in 1975. So we've had all of this time for the discount brokerage industry to evolve to come to this point. But the thing that we need to be careful with, from my point of view, is we don't want to equate buying a stock with betting on a, a football game. That, and if it kind of goes there, it's going to turn out to be a bad thing. Do you think that that's sort of implication of having no fees on these transactions? I don't know. We have to see it play out. That's my hesitation. That's what I don't know. That's what we're going to have to see. We don't want the wrong type of volume in the business. 
I would point out the harder you work, the luckier you get. Joe Ricketson, back of the book, says it all. He's got George Will uh, uh, channeling Branch Ricky, ex of the Cardinals, a guy named Diamond in the banking business, and one of your arch competitors, Charles Schwab, as well. You invented TD Ameritrade. I remember the wonder of it off of May Day, 1975, and, and all that. But has it become a barbell business where it's adults holding equities forever essentially versus the micro hyper trading does does that industry that you invent do they now live and die on that hyper trading uh that hyper trading segment a lot of them do but a lot of them also don't we have evolved at ameritrade just from providing trades to providing a lot of other services that the customer can pay for which include financial planning so there's an evolution that has come about it so there's spectrum of traders that are uh, in the customer base of Ameritrade, but there's also the buy and hold people. I hear silence. Yeah, well, we're, yeah we're, I see we're a frown on your face. No, I mean, look, I, I think that it's an interesting point, this idea of, uh, you know, whether removing the difficulty of entrance, the barriers to entry in the market will encourage uh, imprudent behavior and will encourage people to trade more and not necessarily be deep dive investors. But in some way, don't index funds already do that? They do, yes. They, they trade often and they... Uh, provide a lot of volume to the business, which is good. It's helped the, the market grow in depth. Uh, so it's not so much that they're going to harm the market as that they may not help themselves. Yeah. I want to ask you about the title of your book, The Harder You Work, The Luckier You Get, which is an ethos of Pete Peterson's Nebraska, your Nebraska yeah. as well. And it speaks to a massive body of disaffected Republicans who have had it with this president. What do you say, and, and your family is, is raised funds for President Trump, what do you say to the group of the grand old party out there that doesn't like this guy's style? I really don't feel like I have to talk to them, but I can tell you this. All you have to do is look at the figures. Look at the employment figures. Look at the gross national product. Look at our factories. Uh, things are reviving in a fresh way in the United States. Yeah, but we got, come on, Joe. We got, a, we got a run rate of 1.9% GDP if we're lucky on a trade war that this guy invented. I mean, what is that trade war doing to a farmer 47 miles? Forget about that. My distance is wrong, John. I think in New Jersey. <laughs> what does this do to a farmer 470 miles west of Omaha on the way to Cozad? What's it do to him? I think that uh, in the short term, as you, I know what I read in the papers. It's, it's caused them some harm, but he's given them some help. And now he's got one of the biggest trade arrangements for soybeans that the United States have ever had with China. Joe, don't you worry about that, though, that that help came from the government, that farmers increasingly are depending on handouts? I prefer a society without handouts. But sometimes there needs to be some help for a society. I know that my grandfather had one of the most successful farms near Manly, Nebraska, and he went broke during the Depression. And he moved to a house in Nebraska City to work in the packing house into a house with dirt floors. I mean, there was no social yeah. programs. So there needs to be some. Where you, where you draw that line is the big question. Yeah. Can I do a surveillance correction, Joe, in honor of you in Nebraska? Go ahead. I mentioned 470 miles west of Omaha. That would be Sydney, Nebraska, out I-80. I was wrong. Cozad's in closer to Omaha than I recall a okay. few years ago. 
So that's our surveillance correction for the day. Joe he's Ricketts. In, he's into geography, Joe. Yeah, the the harder you it. work, the luckier you get. Great Joe Ricketts, you. you know him from Ameritrade. The family's got a naughty acquaintance with Anthony Rizzo and the Chicago Cubs uh, as well. And we thank him for coming in uh, today. Uh, uh, truly, and I, and I think, John, in the history, it's forgotten. They revolutionized the business. John, I've really been looking forward to this. There's serious bond dynamics to discuss. Really, really happy to say that joining Lisa, Tom and myself is Lali Topcholu of JOHCM. Lali, good morning to you. Morning. Big day yesterday for credit spreads. Some real tightening. What do you make of the moves we're seeing at the moment? Complacency is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Is that what you think it is? Complacency at the moment? Well, look, ETFs are getting inflows. And when ETFs have gotten inflows, uh, they just buy. That's just the rule of the game. And if you actually look at the active manager cash holdings, it's been steadily rising. What I mean by complacency is everybody's hiding out in the same trade. Everybody's long double Bs. That's just the name of the game. When is it not complacency uh, if you're getting returns so far year to date on high yield bonds of 12.1%? I mean, at a certain point, they're right. It's right. But when you cash in and just say, you know what, going forward, because you got to look forward, not backwards. So going forward, what's the best you can make out of double Bs today, which yield 3.8%? I think it's interesting that you're delineating uh, double Bs, uh, which have a much lower yield and have had a much bigger rally uh, versus triple Cs versus uh, single Bs. Is now the time to either take big risk or go home, go into the triple Cs or not buy high yield? I'm going home. You're going home. <laughs> Are you de-risking at the moment? We, we have been. Um, so remember, we run a commingled portfolio between equities and, and credit. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the risk-reward ratio, to me, equities seem a lot more interesting if you think the growth is going to recover than, than credit from here. And if you think we're going to sell off, look, I think people forget credit is a risk asset class. It is not a hedge against equities. If you want a hedge, you go buy treasuries. You don't go buy credit. Well, in your research note, you've got something pro, which I want you to explain to the public, which is how much of bonds are trading to first call. This is a really important idea, folks. This goes way back to the Bloomberg YA screen where you have language like yield to worst, yield to first call, et cetera. What does yield to first call mean? I mean, I know yield to last call, which is to get, you know, but what does yield to first call? So um, unlike investment grade, high yield bonds are always callable, and they're typically callable three to four years, first year after the issuance. And the way the call is calculated is a function of the yields and, and the spread. So if it's cheaper for the company to refinance today where the things are uh, trading, it is yeah. likely that it, the, the call date will come forward. And when you look at the high yield market today between yeah. the double Bs and, the sing and even the single Bs, majority of the market, close to somewhere like, I would say, three quarters of the market right. is trading to the first call. And in some cases, trading at above prices the first call. And this is so important, folks, because another way to say this is yield to refinance or yield to rollover. It's just assume the liquidity is out there. Is the liquidity out there to do the refi three to four years out? Well, today... Is the belief out there, the trust? <laughs> it is. I mean, today it's there, right? Liquidity, you know, I joke about it and I say, like, liquidity is kind of like having a lion as a pet, right? It's really nice when they're calm, but once in a while it comes and just mauls you. Um, so today we're in that calm period. But 
When I hear things like investment grade managers are looking at triple A CLO spreads to add a little bit on the margin, insurance companies going to look at buying stubs of bonds that haven't been tendered so they can earn extra 20 bips. It says 2006 to me. Lapels, <laughs> lapels were wider. But but here's the problem with that, and and I, I I'm sympathize with that view as as someone who enjoys the sensational kinds of headlines. But the reality is, people have been doing this for a while, and they've been winning. So the question is, when is this imprudent? What are you looking for that indicates this can't keep going? Sure, and we've been winning as well. And um, there's nothing wrong with winning. You just have to know when it is time to pack your bags and and call it a day. Um, and I think we're slowly getting to that point on just on a risk-adjusted basis. Look, if I have an extra dollar to to spend, I'm not telling you don't put it anywhere in the markets. I'm just saying I'd rather put it in the equities and the cyclicals where I think I can make almost 2x the money and, by the way, earn a dividend yield that probably 2x what you can earn on the Treasury than basically hiding out in the double B. So it's just a function of of how you want to craft your portfolio. I know you don't like me talking about your performance too much, but for anyone that's interested, you can go on the Bloomberg Terminal and take a look, a look yourself. It is a really, really good year for 2019 for you, Lalo. Let's talk about where else is crowded. You've mentioned the double Bs part of high yield. Where else is crowded at the moment that you think if people are in, they should be considering getting out regardless of the performance at the moment? I mean, broadly, I think the credit asset is... I, I really struggle with making heads or tails out of it. And I know I wrote this like long email to you guys trying to justify myself, but look at the triple C's, right? Because I, I mean, the math has to matter at some point in time. And this is the flow of averages. Everybody looks at the averages and they look at this high yield spread that has been exceptionally well behaved. And they say, you know what? 400 spread, it doesn't look that bad. I can still earn it. When you start digging into it, it just tells you a different story. If you assume half of the triple C's default, just half of the triple C's, which is not outrageous because they tend to default. That's 15% of the market. At 7.5% default rate, the average high yield spread should be around 600. It's not the triple C's that I think are mispriced. It's the double B's and this defensive that everybody is hiding out in that is grossly mispriced. I think the call point is really interesting because it's also indicating that people are buying bonds at prices that are higher than where the company can buy it back from them at, right? So it's basically (laughs) guaranteeing a loss if the company chooses to refinance. I'm just wondering, you're saying if triple C's see like half of them default, are you seeing any fundamental signs of deterioration? I mean, the easiest one, so there's two things you can look at. One is just look at the ratings, upgrades and downgrades. You are now on a trend. You're seeing more downgrades, broadly speaking, than upgrades. The other part you see is, it's, you know, look at the volatility, both in the loan and the high yield market, right? A company reports good earnings, maybe the bonds go up half a point to a point. You report bad numbers, I mean, we've seen three, five, 10, in some cases, 20 points of downside. It's insane. Like, bonds are not supposed to be like that. Like, at the moment, if we let you go right now, many of our listeners will think you're this uber bear who's sounding the alarm on global markets. That's not the case. Let's wrap things up with the opportunities in front of you in the equity market. You've been doing well this year. I imagine that's coming a lot also from your equity investments. What are you doing at the moment in stocks? 
I mean, equities, we, we always look at it from a portfolio concentration and, and think of it, where, do, where are we in credit and where are we in equities in context? So we, we like some of the cyclicals. We like some of the, you know, European financials is something that we've looked at. Um, it's, and, and really, Europe and Asia are the two areas where everybody has just thrown in the towel. And sometimes you can find quite interesting companies that have been around for a long period of time that you know, is already pricing in a pretty bearish scenario. That doesn't mean it can't go any lower, but people are already assuming pretty much the worst. What do, neg- what do negative interest rates do to your world? You're removed from full faith and credit Europe, but nevertheless, there it is. Does that change the dynamics of the non-full faith and credit market? I, you know, simplistically, I don't think I'm not a believer that negative rates work. It hasn't worked anywhere else, and I think if you ask, you got some company, including Mr. Solomon, speaking to our Matthew Miller today in Berlin. You know, I think if the U.S. were to go negative too, I, I mean, you may perhaps can think of an example, but I can't think of an example where the entire world went negative. Um, it, today, I think it kind of works because U.S. is not negative. It's positive. You can still do relative trades. And I think that's part, of the, that's part of the challenge. You know, there's a lot of inflows coming into the U.S. because we're positive. You know, everybody mm-hmm. is long U.S. dollars, U.S. exposure, U.S. swaps. I mean, follow the money trail. It's actually pretty scary. <laughs> Lala, it's great to see you. Lala Topcholi there, JOHCM USA Senior Fund Manager. Joining us here in New York City. So smart. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.